0: Living Local, telling the stories that connect us, a
1: United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. Hi, this is Katie Kuhn. As we come to the end of the year, I thought I'd share some of my favorite moments from the Living Local podcast's first five months. When we started the podcast, my boss Brian told me to reach for those driveway moments— when you are listening to something so good that you stay in your car to finish listening when you've already arrived home. These are those moments for me and the ones that listeners have told me they keep thinking about. We'll start with a favorite story from our Ex Fabula story slam around the topic of fatherhood from father extraordinaire, Sean Mitchell. On from there to sexual assault survivor and Denim Day Chair, Don Helmrich, Youth Program Manager, Diallo Mayo, Street Beat team members Shaquita and Adrienne, veteran and American Red Cross volunteer Phyllis Wiggins, and finally Coordinated Entry Coordinator Emily Kenny.
2: I grew up without my father. My father left us when we were I was five years old, never really got a chance to meet him, never talked to him on the phone, anything of that nature. So growing up I always had this desire for a father or to be a father. It became like, it became a drive for me that I wanted to be somebody's daddy, right? Even to the point where, when my girlfriend was pregnant by someone else, I told her I was the father and we were gonna pretend that way. Now that's, (laughs) so (laughs) TMI maybe, but it's okay, it's okay. We're sharing, we're sharing, stand by. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, I had this longing to become a father. And I don't know if it was just a father I don't know if it was just to be a father uh, or if it was to take care of someone as my mother and my grandfather had taken care of me. Um, I got that opportunity and uh, in, in 1992 I became a father for the first time, right? And I love the boy to this day. I kept him around. You know, I didn't give him away or nothing. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so as, as, as life went on and about, I had two sons. And about 2006, after, uh, after being a widower and um, being divorced, I was a single father with two children, and I found a woman who became the love of my life. We met in 2006, and we never separated. She had two sons, I had two sons. So then I was becoming a father of a blended family. I was transitioning once again from just a single father and then a married father and then a widowed father. You know, I was, I was really transitioning in fatherhood. But at the time, I really didn't notice it. To me, it was an everyday kind of struggle. You know, they've got to get to school. They've got to eat. You know, they can't wear the same underwear all the time. You know, <laughs> we've got to do something at night. We can't just watch TV. We've got to get up. They've got to be educated. But, so, okay, in 2006, I met my current wife. She had two children. Two sons as well, and it just so happened that they were all around the same ages. So, as life moved on, we began to have life. Uh, we got in—I don't want to say trouble, but we got pregnant. Okay, and I, don't don't quote me on the on the date, but it was probably two thousand seven or so, and we were we were pregnant. Unfortunately, I also had to experience the. Uh, the fatherhood and my fatherhood I also had experience losing a child, so we miscarried and at the time We didn't want to we didn't want to go through this again. We had we had you know Four sons we were fine. Everybody was doing great uh, Two of our oldest sons were getting ready to go to college uh, The other two were in the middle of high school. We were you know, we were fine So I made an appointment to go and have a vasectomy. I was gonna cut it and we, we were not gonna do it again alright, so um, However, I, I procrastinated. And my procrastination caused us to get pregnant again. And now we have five sons. The youngest is now four, and the oldest is 25. But through all of these experiences fatherhood has taught me so much that longing for someone to express my love to was you know was being is always being fulfilled now i have the pleasure of trying to uh is trying to pay attention to their lives and see where i can fit in i try to figure out one thing that they like that i can learn more about so i can be a better father for them so that i can address that one thing for each one of them the one thing that I did not have. It would have saved me from a lot of trouble, but then again, the experiences that I had brought me to the point I am today. Thank you, have a good evening.
3: Before, when my husband and I were considering having children, that was one of the hardest things on the planet for me. And I always get really emotional about this because I was really afraid. I was afraid to have children because I was afraid that someday they would find out and I was afraid that they would think about me different, which they do but not in the same way that I thought. And I I remember talking to someone after my kids were born and I'm like, when am I when am I going to tell them? How how am I going to let them know that this happened? Like what's the right time? And that person looked at me and said, when the time is right, you will know. And I think my daughter was about 10. And it was the anniversary of the day that I was raped and we were down at a festival. And it was like in the evening and music was playing and someone had walked past me and brushed up against me. And I just started to panic. Like I got really freaked out and I started having a panic attack. And she grabbed my hand. She just grabbed my hand and walked me away from the situation. And I just knew it was the right time to tell her. It just felt like the right time to tell her. And she asked, Mommy, what happened to you? And So I told her, and I didn't, like, I didn't tell her in a long, extended version. Um, I, I told her just some small details about what had happened. And over the course of probably two years, she asked me questions here and there until eventually I told her the whole thing. And she said the best thing in the world to me, which is the minute that she said it, I knew that this kid was gonna be one heck of an advocate someday. She said, Mom, why on earth would anyone ever do that to somebody else? There's absolutely no way that that would ever be okay. And I thought, oh my God, this kid gets it. Like this kid knows that this is something so critically important for humans to understand, and nobody had to tell her. She just got it.
1: So how does your background, you know, growing up for part of your young life in foster homes and then being adopted and, I mean, just having a good number of siblings, Mm -hmm. how has that inspired you to work with kids?
4: Well, first, uh, uh, one of my mentors always told me, uh, your current circumstances are never definite. But in order to realize that, you have to first change your... It's all about the thought process. So for years, I struggled with the fact that my parents gave me up at birth. Like, what does that look like? How do you do that type of thing? And I changed that thought into how how can I count my blessings? Like, what do I have to be thankful for instead of uh, looking at those negative thoughts? And, and I see that a lot in our youth is... Um, beating themselves up, not really celebrating the little wins, which sometimes it helps a lot, and and I, and I want to be an example for that. So often I, just, I use my life a lot um, when talking or in spaces with the youth. I don't believe in um, fabricating and, and just being genuine, and, and that often helps. So, and from there, um, they respect that, and often they tell me that, you know, I learned a lot from you. Um, Sometimes they can't believe the stories that I tell them, just from me standing in front of them today. But and, and that's my biggest, uh, one of my biggest takeaways. I want them to have from me is uh, changing our thoughts it often changes the way we look at life and our situations where we are now.
5: I wouldn't say we have favorites, but we have our people that we look forward to seeing, or when we don't see them for a while, we're hey, where you been? You know, what's been up? Um, they definitely look out for us out there in the community. They tell us what's going on, or but they definitely look out for us and make us safe and comfortable within the community, and keep us up on the knowing. Mm -hmm. and everything. My favorite, we
6: have one that's over off of Burleigh, and she is just the most, it's a brother and a sister, and they're just phenomenal, and they, well... They used to listen to the scanner all the time for us. And, like, we'd pull up and they'd be like, and this is what's going on. (laughs) Um, But they also, like, know, they collect all the neighborhood gossip for us and kind of, like, fill us in. Like, you need to go look over here and you need to do this. And it does tend to be, um, a lot of the times, like, um, the people that are outside of our age range, and they really appreciate, and they'll ask us. Like, I've been driving down the streets and had people stop me um, and be like, can you come around our neighborhood for the next couple weeks a little bit more? Because it's been, Stuff's been going on, or I've noticed this kid. Um, so people really, I feel like, feel comfortable with us, and they know the vehicle, and they know our faces, and really want to want us in their neighborhoods. I've all I, more than anything. I just a lot of times feel very like supported, and they and people will be like, "You're doing a good thing." Like we hear that at least once a day. Like a community member come up and be like, "You're doing a good thing. Thanks for doing a good thing." We you appreciate know. Appreciate
4: you. Hmm. <laughs>
5: My first encounter with the American Red Cross occurred while I was in the military, somewhere around the year of 1990. Um, I was arrested and falsely imprisoned, had no idea what I was there for because nobody ever told me, and I ended up in prison and my family couldn't find me. So I'd always told my family, one of the things they tell us when we're in basic training is if your family wants to get in contact with you, they should go through the Red Cross. After a while, my family realized they needed to contact the Red Cross. So they did. And the Red Cross was able to help them locate me and give them advice about how to help me. And that was really, really important because the crime I was accused of was fairly serious. And I'm pretty certain that i would have been locked up still for that crime. My family immediately followed the advice of the Red Cross, and they weren't given legal advice because that's not the role of the Red Cross, but they were told things like, don't, go down to Germany that's not going to help you know uh, don't go hire an American lawyer because that's not going to help either she's covered by military law and you have to get a military lawyer and so just the little tips that they provided to my family helped my family basically calm down and focus on what they needed to do to help me because I was in Germany and they were in Chicago that was distance away.
1: Were they able to get in touch with you and talk with you?
5: Yes, the Red Cross um, was able to locate me actually and talk to my family and were able to tell me, oh, she's in prison in Germany and you need to get a lawyer quickly because she's in trouble and she's in a lot of trouble and running down there isn't going to help anything. So work here as quickly as you can to help her there. And my family did follow all that advice. They got a, a military lawyer right away And the military lawyer found me in the prison I was being held and came to see me. However, at the time, uh, all I knew about prison because I'm a very law-abiding person, I don't speed. If the speed limit's 25, you will find me happily driving down the road at 20. So I just, you know, I knew nothing about prison life. The only thing I knew about prison was I had the right to remain silent. And so I did, I hadn't said a word to anyone. And by the time the lawyer found me, he wasn't certain that I would speak to him. He wasn't certain that I was present enough to even know what kind of trouble I was in enough to speak to him. And, you know, he got me a bottle of water and told me my family was safe and looking for me and that I could trust them. And he asked me what I had done, basically, to just tell him and he would help me. And I looked at him and said, I don't even know why I'm here. And I didn't. I had no idea what I was accused of. And at that point he realized that there had been some kind of breakdown in the way that I had been imprisoned. And he got the charges, he, you know, read the charges to me and none of it made sense. And after a while we realized that, you know, there was a problem and it really wasn't me that had <laughs> committed the crime. You know, it all got straightened out eventually, but the initial contact of the Red Cross truly made a difference, you know, in my freedom, in my family's ability to cope with a situation that was not only scary but overwhelming, and, you know, in my ability in the end to cope with it myself. The The Red Cross was just an invaluable resource to my family, and to this day they're all very, very grateful for, first of all, the teaching to call the Red Cross if there's a problem. I don't know how many soldiers listened to that and actually know to use that resource. But um, you know my family's very grateful and I'm very grateful. So when I left the military, I decided that if it was the last thing I ever did, I would go and volunteer with the Red Cross.
1: So with the coordinated entry system, is there a goal? Are you reaching towards a particular goal or a number by, by a certain time? Yeah, so
0: um, coordinated entry is, is working to end homelessness. Um, but we have to take that in steps. So the first subpopulation of people experiencing homelessness that we're trying to house are those who are chronically homeless. So those who have been homeless for a year or more and who, or who have been homeless four times in three years and have a disabling condition. And that's seen as the most vulnerable subpopulation of people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and the goal is to actually end that type of homelessness by 2017. Um, and wow. I think we're actually on track to do that. Um, we're also, so um, ending homelessness fully, what that would look like is that it would be functional zero. So that if someone were to become homeless, um, that it would take no more than 90 days to get them back into some type of permanent housing
1: Living Local will take a break next week for the holidays, but we will be back with all new episodes in 2017. We'd like to wish everyone a warm, restful, and enjoyable new year. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Rebecca Shimke, Melissa Hannon, Brian McCaig, and John Waldbauer. A special thank you to Ethan and Maeve McCaig for providing the music and voice talent for our introduction. To learn more about the work of United Way, visit our website, unitedwaygmwc.org.